The football pod with Paddy and Andy. Nine months, you're a monk. Work as hard as you can and if it goes well, well then you can enjoy, you can have as much social life as you want when the job is done. Download the OTB Sports app and subscribe to the GAA podcast feed now. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Black box car insurance lets young drivers bounce past high cost premiums. Drive safe and save more with GetSetGo.ie. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five. You can text us on 53106. We're streaming the conversation as well now. So you can listen on News Talk and also watch us on the digital and social channels for Off the Ball for Periscope and Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. Search OTB Sports in your app store to download it if you have not already. This is the Saturday panel. And this time last week, we were all shocked by what happened to Christian Eriksen. A cardiac arrest on the pitch in a European Championship match led to the Denmark footballer being resuscitated. Thankfully, he is now okay. He's been discharged from hospital. So much love for Christian. It does beg the question, though, how was he saved? What are the medical procedures? And what about the entire area of sport and medicine? So to chat with us over the next hour, we're delighted to be joined by the Dr. Alan Byrne, FEI Medical Director, Men's Senior Team Physician, also the Dr. Chamark Rovers, formerly with Fulham, and Dr. Kieran Cosgrave, Irish rugby team doctor, previously the Leinster rugby team doctor, formerly with Liverpool. Alan and Kieran, great to have you on today. Thanks for having us. It's great. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Great to be involved. Um, to start with you, Alan, what was your immediate reaction when you saw what happened to Christian Eriksen last Saturday night in Copenhagen? So shocking when he suffered that uh, cardiac arrest. Yeah, it was incredibly uh, shocking, I must say. I was um, watching the game live. I actually was watching Ericsson at the time and just, you know, where you pick a player and you're just watching their movement. And uh, and then once you see him, uh, you know, toppling over uh, the ball, I think, from the throw and hitting his legs, you know, straight away, <clears throat> you have to consider that uh, a sudden cardiac arrest is the most likely diagnosis. So immediate just shock uh, i suppose you can always uh picture yourself in that situation and um and the pressure that the medics were under to 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 uh, work on him and to uh, resuscitate him uh, must have been enormous and they deserve huge credit for 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 the job they did what was it that saved his life alan um I don't know all the details. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, obviously heard what you've heard and read, um, but really, um, the use of a, a AED, uh, the defibrillation was the the, the, the the piece of equipment that saved his life. Obviously, the training and professionalism of the medics in terms of recognising what that was. So, uh, you know, a witnessed um, collapse with no, you know, trauma involved. All immediately triggering a you know an emergency response and a plan, so all of that training that comes with that obviously that's a key part of of of, of saving him. But if you if you boil it down to it, it was it was it was the shock you know the of from the AED. What was your reaction when you saw it, Kieran? Did you immediately know what this was when you when you saw it? Yeah, slight, slightly different experience for me. I was at a, at a family event. I wasn't watching the match. Um, but my brother, who's a doctor, texted me and said, are you, are you watching this match? And it wouldn't be like him. So I knew something was up. Uh, and then he phoned when I said no. He phoned and he said, you need to watch it. Um, so pretty much from then on, I, I was glued to the news and, and to the TV just to see what was going on. Um, so shocking to see it, but also shocking to see how quickly it became apparent that he was you know, successfully resuscitated and, and alive. And it was just so uh, reassuring to see the photos of him being taken off the pitch, not just um, alive, but also actually conscious. Um, so uh, yeah, well done to the medics, as Alan says, it, uh, it was all their training and, and having the right equipment at hand that, that saved his life ultimately. What is the science, Alan, behind, um, you know, bringing someone back to life in that way? So if you look at, so there are lots of causes of um, sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death, but essentially what is likely to have happened there is he would have developed uh, a rhythm disturbance in his heart. Probably, I don't want to go into it maybe too much yeah. detail, but ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, they're the two rhythms that he's likely, one of those he's likely to have developed. And with that, you get no cardiac output. Your heart stops pumping, working as a pump. So you don't oxygenate your brain and hence you fall over and collapse. Um, so what with those rhythms, what the AED does, it recognizes that rhythm and it tells you, it actually tells you 
to shock the patient. Uh, now, there isn't always a shockable rhythm, unfortunately, and that's why um, you know, resuscitation is not always successful. I think a key message, though, is that the sooner you do that and get to that point, the better. And that really means having access to an AED pitch side and having the training. But as I said, uh, I'm sure Kieran will agree, you, you don't really need that much training to use an AED. It tells you where to stick the pads, it tells you what to do. Um, the training comes with the recognition of the problem uh, because some patients and players who collapse in that situation, they may appear, and if you remember when he hit the ground, his face turns towards the camera side and you could almost imagine that there was some you know, residual breathing, it's called agonal breathing. And sometimes because of the lack of oxygenation, uh, you can get sort of twitching type effects like, like an epileptic seizure. So, so the recognition is really important, but once you get there, the speedy use of an AD, I mean, ideally what you're trying to do is shock somebody in that situation within a one to three minute uh, time frame. We know that for every minute that you don't do that, you reduce the chances of survival by 10%. So time is really of the essence. Um, recognizing what, what the situation is and then acting upon it and staying calm, which I think is a key uh, component to, to making all of the right calls. And shows the importance as well, Adam, of contingency planning. Fabrice Mwamba was lucky. Mark Vivian Foe, who passed away, was not so fortunate. But to have every eventuality, it's so rare, but to have every eventuality catered for in advance is, is so so vital. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, <clears throat> I'm sure Karen will agree with this, but we get worked up in football about hamstrings and groin problems and, you know, knee injuries and ankle stuff. But... This is one of those ones you train for, I don't know how many courses I've done, uh, in fact all of our international team doctors and physios, we did our annual um, training uh, in May, two weekends in May in UCD in their emergency medical centre under the uh, leadership of Professor Jerry Bury and it was really, it's something we've been doing for, we've been running courses for over 15 years uh, in that whole area. but. Um, yeah, it's it sort of puts things really in per, into perspective, you know. Uh, you know, here we are, a very fit, healthy man, you know, facing death. Um, and as I said, we get worked up over hamstrings and other things that aren't really that important in in in, in the grand scale of things. Have you ever encountered anything like that, Kieran? Um, so rare and so shocking. When I think about rugby, I think of maybe uh, injuries in the scrum being very very serious, but but nothing ever like that. No, th thankfully in sport, um, never encountered any, anything like a, a cardiac arrest. Um, through my medical training, I would have worked in intensive care, in A and E, in in cardiology. Um, so, you know, I would have worked at plenty of cardiac arrests. But in that situation, you're 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 in a hospital. You're, you're surrounded by a team of people who are used to dealing with that sort of a situation. You have all the equipment at hand. Um, and I suppose when you do a, a pitch side trauma course, like Alan just mentioned, it's a really good example of you don't know what you don't know. It's not until you get put into that sort of mock scenario of you're on the pitch, someone collapses, what do you do? That you realize, oh, really, I haven't actually considered, you know, how am I going to resuscitate somebody in this situation? So, you know, for any medics out there that are working in sport, I, I couldn't recommend a pitch side trauma course highly enough because it really just finds the, the gaps in, in your knowledge and in the equipment that you might have and making sure that you're you know a appropriately trained and b have all the equipment to deal with a scenario like that uh, it's invaluable and as alan says you, you you thankfully don't need to use it very often uh, between courses so the courses are then so valuable to make sure that you refresh and then you get an opportunity to practice with your colleagues i can't believe alan and kieran that the match uh, was played to conclusion and it must be an extraordinarily stressful event for everybody concerned alan yeah, I, I was really surprised and the, the game went ahead. Um, uh, I, I really think it was uh, an awful lot to ask of the players. I, I'd even feel, you know, if I was the team doctor and physiotherapist on the on the line, the trauma of that alone. I mean, they they may never have done that, as Kieran said. You you, you do that in your, you know, when you're working in hospital, but um, it's a much more controlled environment, uh, and the relationship you have. You develop with footballers if you look after them for a long time there's quite a strong bond so they're not just patients they you know they're, they're much more than that it's a much deeper relationship 
So I I found it really surprising the game went ahead. Um, I couldn't understand it, to be honest with you. Um, so you've been doing a lot of work in cardiac screening in recent years, um, uh, Alan, and you're trying to bring that to more of grassroots football. We're talking about amateur clubs. I know players in the League of Ireland have been screened every three years. How are you getting on with that at the moment? Yes, we started um, the cardiac screening program back in 2007. I was appointed as the medical director in late 2006. So we started with our underage um uh, under 15 boys uh, international squads and then the under 17 women's squads and then in 2008 started with the League of Ireland. Um, in 2018, uh, I and, and sorry, our international squads, uh, if you're playing in a UEFA competition, whether at whatever age, uh, it's obligatory. There's, there's cardiac screening as part of that, not just cardiac screening, but medical screening, but cardiac screening is part of that. So all of our squads uh, at the beginning of every year will have um, history examination, ECG, and then a percentage of those will require further investigations, probably of the order of about 6% of those will require further investigations for clar clarification. And, and the players go through a lot of screening at their clubs as well. But uh, in 2018, uh, I was introduced to Brendan O'Carroll and uh, Brendan and Jenny uh, very kindly uh, were willing to donate uh, a six-figure sum uh, to develop this program further. So in 2019, uh, we planned actually to screen uh, 800 academy players from under 13 through to under 19 and in the women's under 17 uh, league. and. Uh, we ended up screening 1,600 um, and picked up 85 uh, abnormalities and a few players had surgeries and procedures um, and one in particular had a life-changing procedure, um, life-saving and life-changing. And the plan in 2020 was to, Brendan and Jenny were very, they wanted all people to be involved, that this wasn't just about elite football and of course you mentioned already, um, and, and I'm sure Kieran would, would, would concur, you know, if you collapse in Aviva, we've loads of help there, there's lots of expertise, you know, pitch side doctors, emergency care, very well, highly trained pitch side crew, obviously we have my own team with me. And, uh, but if, if you collapse in a park playing football anywhere in Ireland, you know, the resources won't be there. So we need uh, to, to look, we needed to look at that and um, with Brendan's finance, Brendan and Jenny's finance, we were able to set up this program. So the plan was to train 500 grassroots uh, club members. So you can be a player, you could be a club secretary, a parent. It doesn't matter because if you invest in that skill set in the club, uh, most, a lot of people stay with their clubs for life. So that's a skill set that stays with the club. And um, unfortunately, we were due to get going um, uh, and the pandemic struck. So um, I'd been in touch with Brendan and Jenny just to see how they were a few weeks ago, which is a coincidence, and saying that I was looking at September and getting things up and running on the grassroots end of things because I felt that that would be a reasonable time. Obviously, we, um, I mentioned we did our training course with the uh, FAI doctors there recently, but that was all with PPE and you know full PPE. We did all of the course in uh, over the two days. So to make it more manageable, notice can keep you know protect people from COVID and you know the vaccination program being rolled out and all of those types of things. I feel September, I still feel obviously, um, yeah. public health permission will be you know needed to run these courses, but uh, assuming that we will be able to roll it out in September with a view to doing five training five hundred people regionally, um, um, but I'd hope we do more than that, and then we will go back to the cardiac screening. And then one other thing, um, along with the, uh, with Brendan and Jenny, the FAI, we're, we're looking at obviously uh, a way in which we could provide ADs for all our development officers and, and then look beyond that hopefully as well. So for Irish rugby then, uh, Kieran, is there cardiac screening? Uh, and we're also talking about amateur clubs, uh, rugby clubs, all, all clubs. What medical equipment should they have? 
So unlike the FAI, we don't have a formal screening program across the country. Um, World Rugby have guidance on the um, cardiac screening and certainly at a, at a national and international level, it's mandatory. So all of the players would um, undergo full history examination and an ECG. And then if needed, sort of further investigations would be performed. And that's really because of the you know, amount of time that those guys exercise for and the intensity that they exercise at. And below that level, um, on the World Cup, or sorry, uh, World Rugby website, you can access a, a questionnaire, which just brings you through a few questions around any symptoms that you would get uh, during exercise, and also family history of any sort of concerning events. And then, if anything flagged on that, you could you could contact either the club doctor or, or GP to decide if any further investigations would be required. Um, like Alan, um, and like the FAI, they have the RF. You, uh, IRFU have rolled out a training program for anyone involved in the sport, be that um, coaches, teachers, referees, from a basic life support um, training. So it's called Safe Rugby, and there are three different levels. So at the international and, and um, national level, you complete level three, which would be a two-day course. Um, but level one is just a half-day course, which takes you through um, CPR, basic life support, and the use of an AED. And over the last five years, um, they've had over 5,000 people through that program just to make sure that everybody involved in the game at any level is um, appropriately trained and, and has the appropriate equipment. So at the very least, having a, a defibrillator that's very accessible by everybody, everybody knows where it is, uh, making sure that it's checked regularly to, to make sure that the battery's working, things like that, and making sure that it's serviced regularly. Because obviously, you know, there's no point in having a defibrillator that sits there for years and then the one time it's needed, um, it, it, it's not functioning or can't find it or, or it's been locked away. So having a system in place is the how the equipment is managed is as important as having the, the equipment there. Is it commonplace to have a defibrillator now in rugby clubs, uh, Kieran? Yeah, so through the through all the visits through um, the clubs, every single club that we've been to, there has been a defibrillator there and you know it has been appropriately checked and serviced and, and working. So I can't say that there is a, yeah. a, a defibrillator in every single club, but certainly in every club that we've visited, there is one. And would that be the same for uh, junior clubs in, in soccer, uh, Alan? Uh, I actually don't know. Um, I doubt uh, yeah, I doubt if it's in every single club, but I mean, that is a name um, uh, we have with this programme, with uh, Mrs. Brown's Boys uh, Heart Care Programme. But uh, no, I don't think it's present in all clubs. It'll be present in a lot of clubs. Obviously, a situation like this and other ones that have happened in the past has raised awareness and people you know uh, are much more aware of the need for something like this and the training i think it's uh, it's an interesting discussion between screening and, and training you know where that where you should spend the money um uh, you know uefa have made it and fifa have made it obligatory in the same with rugby that you know elite players are screened um but it's a costly exercise as well uh, whereas you could argue that if you train people in the resuscitation basic life support provide with them with AEDs, you may get uh, a better return. But I think it's very difficult not to do both. So how did you get into all of this, um, Kieran and, and, and Alan? How did you, Kieran, ended up working with sports teams? So I've always loved sport, loved watching it, uh, participated in loads of different sports when I was growing up. Um, ironically, rugby wasn't one of them. Um, and I've always, for as long as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a doctor. So when I started studying medicine in 99, I liked the idea of being able to combine the, the two passions of, of sport and uh, medicine. Um, but it was a bit of an unrealistic goal at the time because there was no recognized specialty in Ireland or in the UK of sports and exercise medicine. So you would have had to do something like what Alan w had to do, which was specialize in something else like general practice or orthopedics or uh, rheumatology, say, and then subspecialize in sports medicine. Um, but just through pure luck, um, around 2005, sports and exercise medicine got recognized as a specialty in its own right in Ireland and in the UK. And then it became a, a realistic goal that you could aim for that so then everything then you know became about how could you do that so um after going through the you know general medical rotations through the hospitals um, i did some work in australia and then took a year i did a full-time master's in sports medicine in trinity and then that really just confirmed that this, this is something that i wanted to do full-time so um, i did my consultancy training then in liverpool so i was there for four years and got my consultancy 
actually then 2013 and then pretty much straight away I started working in the sports surgery clinic in Dublin and that's where I've been since and, and worked in rugby as well since. And you worked in Liverpool, uh, what was the Premier League environment like? Yeah, that was that was a great experience. I mean, to 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 be lucky enough to work in any Premier League club is obviously a, a fantastic experience. But I'm a I'm a Liverpool supporter, so it was doubly special for me. Um, I, I did two seasons there at the academy and with the reserves, and um, a little bit of cross cover with the uh, with the first team as well. So I loved working in that environment. It, it definitely confirmed for me that I wanted to work at that you know sort of elite level, and that 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 was something that I wanted to continue. Um, it also opened your eyes to the, you know, the non-sport side of um, the, the non-medical side of sport, um, in terms of the business element and um, the financial element of, of working at that level. So it was, uh, it was an excellent experience all around. Obviously, very professional, Kieran. But you know, if you're working with household names, uh, I'm sure at the very beginning it must be a bit strange. Yeah, it is. It's it's unusual that when you're you're dealing with these guys, they're they're your patients. Um, but when it's your first exposure at that level, you have to kind of pinch yourself to remind you know you're not dealing with just this this footballer off the TV. That it's a it's a person in front of you, and, and it's a, it's it's a patient who has ailments, injuries, illness, and you're there to look after them. You're not there to to get autographs for them from yeah. them. So, and uh, the first time you're exposed to that, yeah, it can be it can be a little bit daunting. But very quickly, it it becomes your job. Um, as Alan says, when you work in that team environment you know you're like a big family and you're all so close players and staff and you know you want you want the best for them and, and when something like what happened with Christian Eriksen happens it's just so traumatic for everybody involved That's, as you said earlier on Alan they become your friends your family uh, there's a professional relationship there which is the the, the primary one it must have been as, as Kieran said a, a bit strange at the beginning when you're dealing with household names yeah I remember um, <clears throat> my first uh job in football well was actually with Shelburne in 1993 um, spent seven or eight really enjoyable seasons there but working with the international team uh, been the team doctor since 2004 my first game was against Brazil on the 18th of February and I do remember driving into Port Marnock I've been agonised about well you know how would I get on with Robbie and Robbie Keane and Damien Duff and Shay Given and, and you know I decided I just was going to be me, uh, and that's what I did. And uh, I'm happy to say, it, I, I would agree with Kieran. You, you, you quickly get over that. You realise you have a job to do. You know, I, I, the one thing, uh, not one thing, but if I'm speaking to younger doctors and physios, you know, you really need to think with your head. You can't be a fan. <laughs> uh, it's great to win, don't worry. And, and it's a real honour to to be, you know, representing Ireland uh, as the team doctor. But um, you know, there's no point in going out uh, when, you know, Seamus Coleman breaks his leg and, and, you know, not having your head on, like, you know, so uh, you quickly lose that. You do, you develop a strong bond. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say that many of the players, even to this day, I still, who are retired, I still have contact with and, and, and uh, someone who's on your, your, your show uh, was regularly Kevin band. We stay in touch, even those in Canada. So it's a it's a it's a real privilege i have to say something i never thought would happen uh, i was I, i've been i went to a rugby school <laughs> interesting here but only ever was interested in playing soccer and um was lucky enough my dad managed shelburne on a couple of occasions and uh, was assistant manager shamrock rowers and just football was just and is still part of every bit of my week um and it's a real you know it's it's a real privilege to be looking after not just international footballers i love looking after amateur players I, I played amateur football myself and i know how important it was to me so you know i, I deal with a lot of players from the Lancer senior league i work yes. in the, the beacon center for orthopedics and uh it's yes. great to help them get back to to to, uh, to playing, you know. Okay, Alan Alan Byrne from the FAI and uh, Kieran Cosgrave from the RFU. We've got to take a break. Back with more on the Saturday panel about sport and medicine after two. You can text us with any questions to the lads on five three one zero six. Off the ball Saturday on News Talk is back after this. Andrew, welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five. You can text us five three one zero six or tweet us at Off the Ball. We're back with the Saturday panel, talking about the area of sport and medicine with Dr. Alan Byrne, the FAI Medical Director, men's senior team.
team physician. Also, the Dr. Chamrock Rovers, formerly with Fulham, and Dr. Kieran Cosgrave, Irish rugby team doctor, previously the Leinster rugby team doctor, formerly with Liverpool. We're streaming the conversation as well. You can listen on News Talk and watch us on the digital and social channels for Off the Ball. For Periscope on Twitter, at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook. We're also streaming on the OTB Sports app. Search OTB Sports in your app store now to download it if you haven't already. Uh, Kieran, what are the most prevalent injuries you're seeing now in sport at the moment? Rugby has become a game of collision rather than an evasion. I was looking at your profile, Kieran, if you don't mind me uh, saying that, and all I see is Kieran Cosgrave uh, taking a player off the pitch. <laughs> and of course, they're going to show those kind of photos, aren't they, when they're, when they're rather than the, the tries as well at, at certain times. But uh, any issues that could lead to medical problems for players in the future, do you think? Like GA has got an issue with hip injuries that the Director General mentioned specifically in his annual report in 2019. What are the most prevalent injuries at the moment, Kieran? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the reason why Alan and I have jobs is because uh, you get injuries in sport um, and that that's just a, a fact. Um, we all know the benefits of exercise and the benefits of participating in sport and I suppose it's important that you know everyone acknowledges that the benefits of exercise will always outweigh the, the, the negatives. Um, with regards to injury, um, in rugby, we'll see you know variations of uh, musculoskeletal injury, be it hamstrings, uh, calf injuries. We can get you know contusions like dead legs. Yeah, you might get ligament injuries like uh, knee knee ligaments or ankle ligaments, and then uh, of course concussion. Um, and you know, I always uh, feel bad in the sporting environment because most of the time when you have a chat with a coach, it's always you know delivering uh, bad or or bad news or, or negative information. We we rarely can go to a, to a coach with some good news. Uh, it, it might be slightly less bad than expected, but um, it, it's usually delivering an update on an injury and, and an expected return. Have you ever had to tell a player, Kieran, that their career is over? Yeah, unfortunately, we've had a few discussions like that. Um, it's it's never that you tell the player uh, that the career is over. Um, you, you'll always uh, investigate it as thoroughly as you can to find out exactly uh, you know what the issue is. Um, then you'll you'll get as many opinions as possible to see what the different options are uh, to you know treat the condition, get them back to, to full fitness, and then you know after you've explored a few and they've been unsuccessful, then you start to have conversations around you know what happens if you're not successful so it's rarely you know it's, it's never a case of you when you tell somebody they're not playing and um, it usually becomes apparent over days weeks or months that you know everything that you're trying isn't successful and therefore we need to explore what uh, you know the options are beyond rugby uh, for the player and I think rugby is really good at, at you know through the union uh, trying to make sure that rugby players realize that they are you know people playing rugby and and that outside of rugby they all have lives that they will continue to live beyond that and, and considering what their options are through studying and through employment and through internships and things like that. Alan, you've dealt with routine injuries like Kieran has as well, but also serious injuries. Shane Duffy was one example. Yeah, in uh, May 2020, um, we were playing the uh, junior international team in, in uh, Malahide, and um, we, we approached it in the same way we normally did, and uh, it was a free kick, uh, and it was a collision between Shane and, and the goalkeeper. And uh, it looked like, to all intents and purposes, he was winded, and... The head physiotherapist, Kieran Murray, was on the pitch and very quickly called me on. And I don't know, I still don't know to this day, to be honest with you, John, how I knew there was something serious going on. It wasn't obvious because it was an injury that is, we could not we could not find it reported in the literature, in let alone in soccer, but Gaelic football, AFL, um, NFL, rugby. It just hasn't been reported. So it was a unique case. I just knew he was unwell. I didn't know what was wrong with him, to be honest with you. But I knew we needed to get him to hospital quickly. And Professor John O'Byrne, who's the orthopaedic surgeon who works with the team, took him to hospital in the ambulance. And um, in fact, I remember meeting his dad, who sadly passed away recently at the ambulance and advising him to go with Shane because Shane was getting more unwell by the minute. But uh, Jerry McEntee in the matter uh, found the problem, operated on him, and saved his life. Um, it was, uh, I, I, you know, I think you were asking me about the trauma of the players playing. I was so caught up for three or four days, and you know, the whole thing about making sure he was okay, and that everything in communication with the club. He was at Everton at the time. That really, three or four days later, it really hit me. You know, uh, what had happened. Sorry, what could have happened. 
and uh, as I said to this day I, I still don't know what made me make a decision very quickly but I'm absolutely delighted I did I must be delighted to see him flourishing in his career and played well there recently for Ireland yeah I, again I'm, I'm sure Karen would agree that when you when you're involved with significant injuries with players it, it, it you create a bond with them that's usually lifelong you know and uh, I sometimes joke with Shane you know if he's up on the couch and so where'd you get that scar? You know, we've seen the scar. It's a huge scar, you know, um, to access his liver. So, um, yeah, we've, we've, a, we've, a, we've a strong relationship, uh, understandably. We're talking about physical health, Alan and uh, Kieran, but also mental health has become so important in the management of that for a professional, for an amateur sports person, for any person in society. Would you have find it um, more prevalent now, uh, Kieran, that uh, players would come to you and, and ask for help around mental health? Yeah, I think generally in society, it's definitely become more acceptable to talk about mental health issues and, you know, talk about feelings. And certainly within uh, the team, we encourage that and, and we, we chat to the players and we say, you know, this happens among members of the general public. It happens among elite athletes. It doesn't matter, you know, who you are and what you do. You can't control whether, you know, you're going to suffer with any mental health issues. And the worst thing you can do is trying to, you know, bottle it up because it's it's always going to go the wrong direction if you do that. So we would encourage the, the lads to speak up, whether it's to me or to a coach or even to their, you know, to their own club doctor or to their general practitioner. And um, we also put in place, um, you know, clinics within the group and bring people in to talk about things and, you know, try and tease out any issues that people may not even realize that they've been struggling from. Um, Anxiety is a really big one where, where people might not associate that with a mental health issue they just think that's normal in their sport because that's the way they've always felt but actually when you really get into it it it, it, it can be problematic not just from a performance point of view but also for them in their day-to-day -day lives and once it starts to affect that i think it's important that you do intervene and you do get them some help and that that could be in the form of of counseling um or potentially going down the route of medication if the counseling wasn't helping would that have been a part of your training now 15 years ago karen or has only come in recently Sports medicine is quite unique because it, it aligns with lots of different different specialties. The obvious one would be, say, orthopedic surgery and the injury side of things, and then you've got the trauma through your A and E. Um, but lots of what we look after when we're with teams, it's it's general practice stuff. It's coughs and colds and, and rashes and mental health issues. So when you want to to work in sports medicine, it's really important that you do get exposed to the the full breadth of um, skill sets that you're going to need to be able to look after a team. Um, and and that's why the sports medicine training schemes, whether it's in Ireland or in the UK, cover all of the specialties that I've just mentioned. And it's not just about injury. Um, and, you know, so as a student, obviously, you would have worked in, in psychiatry, but most of my professional mental health exposure would have come through working in general practice and, you know, just dealing with general public and the issues that, that, that they come in with on a day to day basis. And a lot of pressurized dressing rooms, you would have been in, in just there. And that's what you would have seen. A lot of, a lot of things on the line. If you're going to Japan, you're in a World Cup, it isn't going so well. Um, this is not an environment which is always fun and light and laughs all the time. Yeah, the the um, the dressing room is a, is a really unique place to be, um, and the the swings of emotion from one game to the next, and from the start of the game to halftime to the end of the game, you, 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 it's hard to describe it. Um, you have to be able to, you know, behave objectively and, and, you know, remember what you're there to do. You're there to look after the players and that's your number one priority. And, you know, irrespective of how important the game is, how important the player is to the game, um, that ultimately the, you don't take any chances with them. You don't put their health at risk. And, and if, you, if you have any concerns that you intervene and, you know, you look after them. Would you have had many people, Alan, coming to you and said, look, mental health isn't great at the moment. Um, can we talk about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Kieran. Uh, you know, footballers are no different to, to people in general. They have the same problems. Um, just because you're famous or very good at a sport, it doesn't protect you from the uh, mental health aspects. So, yeah, certainly had similar experiences. I I tend to, uh, before going to bed, go around the players' rooms at, at night time and just sometimes you'll have seen something happen during the day, maybe training didn't go well or whatever, and spend a bit of time just 
having a general chit chat and sometimes out of that things then emerge um and we recently david ford obviously used to play for ireland um uh has has been involved with the men's senior team uh in a life coaching role and i think that's been myself and david have had uh, some very good discussions around how to approach the whole mental health aspect with the players and i think the lads have found it very beneficial Anything um, specific you can talk about there, Alan, just in terms of like techniques? Well, I think um, it's in terms of, I think one of the most important things is uh, you need to build a trust with with um, players if they're going to open up about their mental health because they'll tell you about their knee or their hamstring or whatever, but they won't open up unless they trust you. I think you need to be good at listening. Um, in terms of techniques, it really, it's hard to give you, you know, a, a pat answer for that. Yeah. Uh, it really depends on the type of problem. Um, there are breathing techniques, for example, we have a breathing session every morning now with David Ford and the players, and it's voluntary. If you want to go, you can go. Some of the staff are going as well. Um, so I think it depends on the problem. Obviously, the very significant, where I've seen it probably raise its head more so is when players retire or are approaching retirement, that anxiety around retirement and filling in the gaps around what used to be a busy day training. If you ask, I'm sure training is, is what the lads love doing. They love going out training every morning. When training is over, then we're into recovery and all that. But it's, it's filling in those gaps uh, when players retire. I think that's a huge issue. Um, and one that we certainly haven't, we could do a lot more on. And also filling the void of fame, Alan, if you're playing in front of 50,000 a week, the, 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 the energy rush of that. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of travelling involved in elite sport. You know, you're away, the lads are away from their families as well. Um, and there's a, a reconnection sometimes, I think, has to happen. But I think the fame bit, yeah, it's an it's a interesting and, and true point. And the issue of concussion, uh, Kieran, in rugby has become uh, like a, a big talking point over the last few years. Um, would you describe it as the biggest medical issue in the sport at the moment? Yeah, I think it probably is in terms of, you know, even the um, injury profile across rugby, concussion has been the most common injury. Um, so it's definitely topical in terms of, of how common it is, but also the concern around um, long-term issues. Um, I think rugby has really led the way in terms of how they manage uh, on-field incidents and making sure that if there is any suspicion of concussion that you know the player gets removed, that they get an appropriate amount of time to get assessed and, and, and if there remains a suspicion or there's a confirmation of suspicion then that the player doesn't go back onto the field that day and that they undergo their, their graduated return to play. So I think rugby has been very proactive in trying to make sure that the players are looked after as best possible with the information we currently have and they're con constantly trying to review that information and when changes need to be made and the guidelines need to be changed then, then that happens. Um, are repeated concussions dangerous in your view Kieran? I think the evidence would suggest that they can be. Um, we still don't have a definite number of, of how many concussions equals a problem long term and I've seen lots of cases where, you know, players have had multiple concussions across their career and, you know, had absolutely zero issues in their career and post-career. Um, and then there'd be other guys who have much fewer concussions and then, you know, have issues with long-term symptoms. So we don't know. It's not it's not a case of, you know, X number equals long-term problems. Um, some of the worrying signs would be people who are taking longer to recover or people who are getting concussed more easily and if we see that that's when we would intervene and say look you know this this isn't working you know the the graduated return to play process for that individual um wouldn't be you know we're not going to return you in six days that might be a period of several weeks or months or, or potentially longer and um, before we're happy that the player is safe to return um i spoke to mickey collins from the university of pittsburgh medical center he's an expert in concussion um, on the show recently enough. And one thing I actually didn't ask him, uh, Alan, and I think is important for amateur players in sport, how does a person know they're concussed? What are the symptoms of concussion? We know what concussion is. It's it's an energy crisis in the brain. It is a shock to the system in the brain. But if you, what are the symptoms of concussion? Just for anybody who's listening out there that might have got a bang in the head and, and are not sure it might have been just a bang in the head or it might have been something more serious that needs to be treated. 
Yeah, I heard your interview actually, John, with uh, Mickey Collins. It was really very interesting. It was uh, really found it very helpful. Um, I think so. The, the the player is probably the last person to realise they're concussed. So it's the person who's looking after them, whether it's a coach or a parent or a teammate. Uh, obviously, headache is probably you know the, one of the one of the um, main symptoms. Dizziness, nausea, some visual disturbance, imbalance. Those types of things are the common ones. Um, and of course, if you've witnessed it, we talked about Christian Eriksen, obviously a witnessed collapse, you know, um, with no trauma involved. Whereas obviously with a concussion, you'll usually see the instant where there's a clash of heads or an elbow to the head or a kick to the head or a fall or whatever. So witnessing the event obviously helps you decide that. Um, but they're the common real, you know, the ones that we would see. Um, it, it can be difficult, though. It's a, it's a, it, it can be quite subtle. Um, you know, um, you know. I can think of a couple of times over the last nearly thirty years working in football where that's happened, and it's really been a, a delayed diagnosis for me. Once I, you know, came back off the pitch and then had another look, thought, you know, I need to take this player off. Um, it's usually fairly straightforward, but they're the main ones really that you'd be, you know, the suspicion around it, but not to be left up to the player for sure. Um, and I do agree with Kieran. I think Ruby have been, you know, really led the way in in, in uh, how they've handled it. Um, football has done a lot of work on it. Um, I think we can do more. Uh, that we're using the concussion substitutes in the League of Ireland and the Women's National League this season, uh, which was introduced by FIFA. And uh, even there was an incident there in one of the games in, in the uh, Euros where there was a query about whether somebody was concussed or not and apparently examined independently and was deemed not to be concussed. The incident looked very traumatic. This is Benjamin Pavard? Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that, that was a player. But it looked very traumatic. I know when I saw it. I thought, but he said he was know, knocked out for 10 to 15 seconds. Yes, but then he's concussed. <laughs> There's no... You don't... I actually, that's, a, that's an important point. You do not have to be... You do not have to lose consciousness uh, to be concussed. In fact, most people who are concussed do not lose consciousness. So does football need to improve a bit, do you think? Yes, definitely. When you saw the whole Jeff Astle thing then, um, Alan... Uh, death by industrial disease is what the coroner described it as um, and I wonder is it a coincidence if all of these World Cup winners from England in 1966 uh, sadly pass away from dementia uh, is it more than a coincidence uh, it's very difficult to prove it but it does look quite worrying yeah I certainly think the evidence uh, is building uh, I would agree with Karen. we just don't know uh, John at the moment I think uh, there is a lot of research going on around it in all sports where this is a, a risk. I think um, I know there's a lot of debate about whether you know heading the ball is an issue as well. Um, again, there's no there's no proof that that is the case. Um, I think we, we need to keep looking. Um, I, heading is a integral part of football. Uh, I don't know. I think. What UEFA have done is looked to minimise the heading in, in um, youth football significantly. And actually, there are very few headers in underage football anyway. Uh, but I think that link is just not proven. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the answer to that, but we need to keep looking. A very tragic situation for all of those very famous, successful World Cup winners. And uh, it does appear a bit more than a coincidence, but I think we have to be careful in medicine um, we need to work with evidence. It really is important that we work with evidence. Um, so at the moment, we just don't have that. So that field study that was done from the University of Glasgow, um, they, they did a study of, of players born between 1900 and 1976, I believe. Um, you're not completely convinced by that, Alanary? No, no, I think it was an excellent study. Uh, I, I, I did comment that um, I think there was a link being made between heading the ball and the development of neurodegenerative disorders. And the field study does not state that or prove that. Okay. Um, when you saw the Steve Thompson uh, story break, uh, Kieran, how did you feel about that when the early onset dementia in his early 40s? Yeah, it's, it's very concerning, you know, when you hear relatively young players coming out and talking about struggling with uh, 
cognitive issues like dementia. Um, and, and, and as a medic who works in a sport that, that um, players can sustain concussions, you, you, you know, you do look at, you know, the way you practice and you, you want to make sure that you're doing your absolute best for the players, that you're looking after them as, as best as possible. Um, you know, we want to look at prevention. How do we stop these injuries from happening? And that's not that's not just a medical decision. That obviously needs to involve coaches. It needs to involve the, the rule makers. It needs to involve the referees. And, you know, certainly in rugby, they have made a huge effort to try and ensure that the rules are there to be as safe as possible, that the referees apply those rules, that there are, you know, heavy penalties and sanctions for people who um, take, you know, dangerous actions on the pitch. There's a lot of work with the coaches around tackle tech because we know that a lot of the concussions happen to the tackler, not to the person being tackled, ironically. And um, by working on tackle tech, that we can ensure that the, the head isn't found in the wrong position, therefore it's less likely to be hit, and therefore you're less likely to get a concussion. So a huge amount of work going into prevention. And then as a medic, it, it's my job to make sure that if there is any suspicion that the guys have had a concussion on the pitch, that we don't let them back on that day and that they don't go back to training or back into a game scenario until they're fully recovered. And then obviously taking a longer term approach, you know, looking back through guys' history and if they have got, you know, signs starting to develop in their history in terms of number or severity or time to recovery, that we intervene, we get them seen by, by neurologists, we get further investigations and, you know, we just do our best to look after these guys because it's, you know, you're not looking after them just in the here and now. You're, you want to make sure that they, you know, live full lives and whatever they do beyond sport. Um, would it have been the case, Kieran, that the, the the protocols and the treatment is right now, but it might not necessarily have been right twenty years ago, and that's why you've had these issues arise? Yeah, I think you know, I myself can look back at the way I managed things early in my career, and I and I speak to the guys that have been in the sport for a lot longer than me and, and worked in sports medicine, and they look back at incidents that they 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 dealt with which they thought they were dealing with the right way at the time. And they look back and they cringe because we know a lot more now. And we think, oh, you know, we shouldn't have done that at the time. And I've no doubt in, you know, 10, 15 years, I look back at things that I do now and, and potentially think that wasn't the right thing to do. But I think as long as you are acting in a way that is, you know, best practice in, in that current time and you're looking after the players as best you possibly can, I think, you know, you can look back and say, well, you know, I was trying my best. Um if a parent looks at the TV and sees rugby as a sport that's very, very physical, has a lot of collisions and kind of going to myself, I don't want my son or daughter playing that. Could you reassure them about the safety of it, uh, Kieran? Yeah. You know, there's loads of sports that you look at out there, whether it's, you know, combat sports, boxing, UFC, if it's, you know, horse riding and people coming off horses and uh, the dangers that are involved in participating in sports. You know, there are very few sports out there that have no risk. And I suppose everybody has a, a level of risk tolerance that they're prepared to take for themselves and, and for their for their children. Um, I would never try and, you know, push anybody into any sport that they didn't feel comfortable with. But I think, you know, parents can be reassured to know that in the, in the sports, be it rugby or in, in football, where Alan's working that you know the medics are genuinely doing their absolute best to make sure that those sports are as safe as they possibly can and as new evidence comes out there that you know things need to be changed and as new technologies come out there that will help then we'll continue to change our, pra our practice in line with that. Yeah, I mean, all you can do is your job. It's up to the rule makers to make the rules about how the game is played. Uh, Kieran and Alan absolutely w would agree with that. Um, I asked Mickey Collins again about the uh, issue of concussion and, and whether this is a ticking time bomb in 20, 30 years, whether rugby players are going to be paying a bill for what's happening now on a pitch. And he said he didn't agree. He would have been of the view that concussion is a treatable problem as long as a player does not continue to play when they're concussed. It seems from what you're saying, Kieran, that the protocols are there, the HIAs, all that kind of thing, to make sure there's a very safe environment. Do you see a situation in 20, 30 years' time where that we could have chronic illnesses out of, of the way sport and like rugby is being played at the moment? I think we have to say we don't know. Um, I would probably agree with Mickey that um, the, the real worrying time was when you know rugby became professional and, and, and the athletes got bigger, they got stronger. We didn't know as much about concussion then. The protocols weren't as strict. And that was, you know, colliding variables where you had um, an increased 
risk of concussion uh, without those protocols to protect them. So I would like to think that now is, you know, the safest time to be playing rugby because the protocols are there. They are so strict. There are sanctions if you don't follow them. Um, everybody's aware of the potential consequences of ignoring concussion, letting people play. And I think it happens so infrequently now in rugby that I would like to think in 20 years we'll look back and be able to say, yeah, we did a, a good job there. And, you know, we'll know a lot more then. And then hopefully things will continue to improve. Um, Alan, you're part of the uh, government's return to sport medical expert group. I'm sure there might be a bit of confidentiality around what you can say, but I'm looking at full stadium in Hungary the other day. I'm looking at 32,000 people a day going to the Open Championship in July. Um, are we are we getting there? Are we going to get there in terms of getting fans back in stadium soon, do you think? Yeah, I think um, uh, we're definitely getting there. I think when you look at the, the numbers each day and week on week, the instance rate, um, I definitely think we're, we're getting there. Obviously, the vaccination program has, has been going well. I suppose we can never be 100% happy about that. But I think we're certainly are looking at uh, already, you know, increasing uh, attendances as each month goes by. There, as you know, there have been planned events where there were fans back in uh, in Tala and Cork uh, last week, and uh, and those numbers will increase with, uh, you know. Yeah, I, I just I suppose I need to be careful a little bit with what I say, but yeah. but overall there is a, a definite plan about increasing those numbers, John. Yeah, fifty-eight thousand uh, were um, trialed in the UK at sporting events, fifteen positive cases. Um, I'm just wondering, is outdoor safe? It, to me, it just appears safe. Are we a little bit cautious here, perhaps? Yeah, I think uh, it's a um, when you look at what happened, say in December. Uh, I can understand the caution, and I know the lockdown. I mean, we were talking about mental health. Yeah. I mean, general practice was flooded with mental health issues, um, and continues to be around the pandemic. I think if you asked any of my colleagues, they will, they will identify with that. But I, you know, I sort of feel we're we're getting so close. Just a little bit more patience, uh, and we will, you know, be really able to enjoy, uh, you know, a more complete and fuller life for everyone. Um, I know it's not perfect, but I think what happened in December and subsequent to that was scary. Um, and then this whole Delta variant is, is causing some concern. We seem to have low numbers here, although it's difficult to see when you look at the numbers in the north and you know the cross-border activity. Um, you know our numbers seem very low, and hopefully it stays that way. Hospitalizations, you know, are going down. ICU uh, admissions are going down. But uh, I definitely think we're getting there. I suppose we get to the stage when, you know, you, you start to get a taste of what it used to be like. You just can't wait to get back into it again. I mean, I've been very fortunate. I've been working uh, all of the time and been able to work at football matches. But it still isn't the same, John, without fans. It just it just isn't. Uh, fans are a key component of, 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 of sport. That is fascinating what you say about the amount of mental health um, referrals that there were. Uh, during this pandemic, I think possibly underreported as well uh, as a serious issue that we've had in, in, in society and, 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 and needs to be addressed really just in terms of coverage. It's, it's, it's incredibly challenging. Um, uh, on a typical day, a full day in the clinic, you know, I would see maybe three people with mental health issues. I'm now seeing three times that. Um, uh, and, and that's across and my colleagues are, are experiencing the same thing and, and it's different age groups you know uh, right through from young people to older people some people who were very resilient people I've known them for many many years they're patient alive for many years really didn't cope very well with the last lockdown because it was for so long so you know, uh, it is something, I think it's a fallout from the pandemic that will need to be looked at and addressed um, amongst many other things. But I think we're getting close. I, I, I really feel there's a positive energy around what's happening. Um, but I understand the impatience. I mean, when I was in Hungary, um, I did speak to our team liaison officer a little bit about, um, uh, you know, there's a certain uh, denial about what's going on in Hungary that COVID is not really happening there. So. I think we'll need to see what the fallout from the Euros is in relation to uh, countries and their case rates. Well, I hope somebody from the government is listening to what you just said there about the mental health uh, issues around the pandemic because um, it's very, very serious. Uh, Kieran, you've, um, you're going to the South Africa with the Lions. I see you got the shirt on. Um, you're going to be in the bubble. How's that going to work out? 
Yeah, we've, we've been in the bubble for a week now. Uh, we left on Sunday last and came to Jersey, and uh, that's where we are currently. So we've been here for a week. Um, everyone's used to living in the bubble. We've been doing it now for 18 months. Um, you know, since rugby got back, we realized that the only way to get back to rugby safely was to have all these protocols in place in terms of, you know, your hand washing, your mask wearing, your social distancing. And and pretty much any time the lads aren't on the pitch, um, they're following all, all these pro protocols. Obviously, you can't play uh, international rugby and follow those protocols at the same time. But it's, it's a unique environment uh, to be in. Um, we need to try and balance that with the, the mental health of these guys. They're here for eight weeks and, and we need to make sure that they, you know, can enjoy themselves and get some time to, to relax and unwind. Um, but, you know, I've been amazed at, at how quickly everyone's gelled in the team. We've been here for, for six days and already this got a real good team feel about it. I'm looking forward to see uh, what we can achieve over the next seven weeks. How restrictive is it going to be down there, uh, Kieran? We're pretty much in the bubble and that's it. Um, we, we stay in the bubble. We don't have any interaction with uh, the outside um, population. So we can, we can, you know, travel together in a bubble. We can do excursions in the bubble. Um, anybody that we have to have interaction with needs to be tested in the same way that we would be tested. So that we they would be PCR tested in the days leading into them entering the bubble and then they would be antigen tested or lateral flow tested on arrival. Um, and then we, you know, try and keep our distance from anybody that's not traveling within the bubble as much as possible. So um, it'll be a very different tour, um, but the guys have done a great job to make sure that uh, it's as enjoyable as possible within the restrictions there. Very good. Um, just would you be able to put a, an estimate on, say, the end of August, uh, Alan, an, an All Ireland final? How many people we potentially could have at it? I don't really know, John. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, I really, I, I couldn't answer that question. Um, I, I just don't know. Okay, no worries. Just before we go, obviously, there's a lot of serious things we've talked about: concussion, Christian Eriksen, cardiac screening, injuries. Um, just, just before we go, Alan, like amateur sports people, um, you know, your your regular guy on a Sunday, the five aside, the uh, the, the club player. Um, what do they need to look out for when it comes to managing their body and, and injuries and that kind of thing? Are there kind of common pitfalls? Well, I think, again, maybe just to talk about the pandemic, the f last year people started um, exercising, doing more exercise than they'd done before or doing, you know, doing up their house or digging the garden or whatever. So people began to do too much. So that's one of the things we see a lot is an overuse uh, issue around and that can largely, depends on the age group, but cause a lot of issues around tendons, Achilles tendons, patellar tendons. Um, and then obviously in the older age group who are remaining active may have some underlying you know wear and tear in their joints and then by you know overdoing it flare up maybe some early osteoarthritis in their knee or their hip but overall i think um it's about load management usually uh doing just because we're let out and do things again not to if you train twice a week but train twice a week don't start training five times a week you know uh, if you train for an hour and a quarter train for an hour and a quarter you know don't, you know because there's a there's a reason for that because uh, so i think it's hard to go back to the way we were because people forget what it was like but i think we need to to sort of do manage the load on in terms of the return to football i've certainly seen a number of players already from the Leinster senior league who've had injuries and it really has boiled down to them their their you know enthusiasm to be honest with you yeah so i think to try and get back to what we used to do that sort of if it's two or three sessions per week that that's what you do that that you prepare well that you hydrate well that you eat well that you rest well recover well um it, it, but it's, look, these have been the strangest of times, so it's difficult and understandable that people perhaps have gone a little bit, you know, crazy in the on the on the in the return to their their sport. And uh, you were at the Olympics um, in 2012, Kieran. Are you surprised it's going ahead? No, I'm not. I'm not surprised. I think it's an, an appropriate decision. You know, sports across the globe are, are continuing. Um, there are protocols in place to make sure that the athletes are protected and to make sure that the surrounding population are protected. Um, it's always a balance. It's always trying to weigh up the risks um, of of running events against the you know the, the detriment to everybody concerned if if an event like that doesn't go ahead. And you know these these guys have trained 
in some cases their whole lives for this one event and i don't think you should underestimate the consequences of just saying okay we're going to scrap it we're not going to hold that event so it'll be eight years which is a career for some people and they'd never get that opportunity so you know that that does need to be weighed up within the decision around risk and you know personally i think it's an appropriate decision providing they're you know they keep doing what they're doing which is risk mitigating and just to finish, I know you're not fans. I know you you do very serious and professional jobs, uh, Kieran and Alan. But Kieran, you must ha- at times have a moment where you actually appreciate, well, the surroundings here are not bad. This is a pretty good experience. All the time. I uh, I, th- I suppose I've had that very recently by, by coming into the Lions. It, it was a huge honour to, to get asked to join the team. Um, and I just joined the team six days ago. So, you know, you, you stand, you look around at the environment, you know, the players from the four different nations, the staff from the four, four nations, and to have that opportunity to work in this new environment again, to learn new things, to get to know the people. Um, yeah, I, I feel so privileged to be involved in sports medicine and, and within the Lions, within the IRFU. And yeah, I, I pinch myself regularly. And Alan, I'm sure you've looked around and, and, and seen some amazing things in your time uh, traveling with the national team. Extraordinary. The Euros uh, uh, are unbelievable memories. Uh, to see the fans, um, getting back to the fans again, you know, Robbie Brady putting that ball into the net against Italy is a, a lifelong memory. You know, we're very, we're very, very lucky people. I, I, I never take it for granted. I know it's a, an extraordinary privilege and I want to take extremely seriously and I'm really proud to, uh, to uh, be the team doctor for the national team. Well, Alan Byrne, FAI Medical Director and Kieran Crossgrave, IRFU, soon to be a doctor with the Lions. Enjoy the Lions, uh, Kieran. Thank you both for your insights, your candour, and your time on the panel this afternoon. Thank you. All right, best Thanks, of luck. John. Best of luck, Kieran, with the Lions. Thanks, Thanks Alan. This is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. We're back after this. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Black Box Car Insurance lets young drivers bounce past high cost premiums. Drive safe and save more with GetSetGo.ie.